Good morning. Good morning. It's wonderful to get everybody together. Unfortunately, it's uh, talking about things that are um, unusual that um, brings people together today. And I want to thank everybody for their participation, both in this room and across our organization. I think today represents an interesting time. It's not just about Ebola. It's about a great organization coming together all the time in times of need. We've had many examples with SARS, the avian flu, vaccine shortages, power failures, the met tax from the state when we've actually had to lay off almost 400 of our colleagues. And this organization has always rallied together to come back to be leaders despite the great challenges. And for that, on behalf of myself, our board of trustees and others, I want to say thank you. This is another time where many of our colleagues have stepped up to make incredible Let's see, Incre just this one. Press escape. See, we have to even help everybody in slide mode right now. <laughs> but this group of people has come together around a, a challenge to the world, not just a challenge to our community and across this country. And we could argue that this is not a significant challenge, and I hope everybody's gotten their flu vaccine because that's much more of a challenge for us locally. But with the new case diagnosed in New York, it's not so far away. And I think that um, what I've asked Ed Marins and under his leadership and a team of people to do is spend time talking about how this organization has prepared itself, not for Ebola, but to prepare ourselves for any biohazard or any difficult situation and to put together a playbook so whether we're here or the next team is here, that this organization is prepared to deliver what the communities and people we represent expect from us. And that's leadership, outstanding care, and just the, our culture of caring. So I want to thank Ed, his team, and all the people on the screen here, and so many more that aren't represented, for everything you do every day. And today is just an opportunity to talk about a crisis that I think will help us prepare us in many ways for our future. So add to you and your team, thank you, and we appreciate the time. Hey, uh, okay. Can hear me? We're gonna be, I'm gonna make this pretty brief, but thanks everyone for being here. Um, the most important communication we can do is our own internal communication. Uh, the people that work here that take care of patients are the most important people we have to communicate, and that's why we're here. We've done uh, updates. Uh, Rick has been, Rick Adams from Communications has been producing uh, updates every day for people so we know what's happening. This is an evolving scenario, but we really wanted to have this opportunity to talk to everybody. I'm really thankful for uh, Rich Rothstein for uh, uh, postponing and letting us use his Grand Rounds time. Uh, Rich Freeman as well. The, this is being simulcast to the Surgical Grand Rounds, and I appreciate both our chairmen for uh, making this, this time slot in the rooms available. Rich has continued his tradition of the culinary medicine uh, opportunity in the morning to have uh, be educated about fine food and how to eat well so we can uh, practice things that actually improve our lives. There's CME available for that. If you participated in that, you can do that. Um, we, are, we are simulcasting across our organization. This will also be recorded so you can watch it afterwards. I realize a lot of people are getting ready, are seeing patients now and are doing that. The majority of our organization is involved in seeing patients now, so that can be seen later. Uh, you can send questions to questions at hitchcock.org, and we'll try to get to them. Uh, our presentation today it really is the full spectrum. We have Elizabeth Talbot, our state epidemiologist, also a Dartmouth faculty member, who has the global 
and national perspective. Uh, she's leading regional trainings in terms of PPE uh, to talk about the global state and, and, and national perspective. Um, Antonia Antomare from also our hospital epidemiologist and ID will talk about our preparations here. And we have our team here as well to answer questions. We'll do two, two presentations and then really open it up for questions. We've already received some questions online. We'll get to those. We're not going to be able to answer all the questions. We update our frequently asked questions area of our website uh, really on a daily basis. And that's a good place to go to see about things. Um, the other thing that we've tried to do is really say that to project some aspect of calm with all this. Um, there's a lot we know. There's a lot we can find out. There's great resources on the internet. There's a lot of things you don't want to find on the internet. But the CDC, our own site, the state has very good and accurate and up-to-date recommendations. So thank you very much for being here. And we'll, we'll start with Dr. Talbot. talking to you about Ebola, of course, um, and, and also maybe surreal that um, I'm so poorly prepared. So I want to warn you that there will be clunky transitions and typos on slides, but that reflects how very dynamic the situation is. So I'm going to start our time together with the didactic information around um, national, uh, sorry, I'm a low talker. Um, <clears throat> and I'll wander a bit. If I walk right out the door, you'll understand, I hope. I'll start with the national perspective and speak to what's going on at the state level as well. Um, I have no conflict of interest like many others who have committed uh, their careers to public health. Um, for a long time, we've, we've known uh, the life cycle of, of this virus um, since 1976 when first identified at the Ebola River in Zaire, then Zaire. Um, we know that this um, perpetuates in our environment um, as a bat to bat to bat. And um, zoonotic. Your microphone's Seems even maybe a little worse. How about if I just hold it and walk, okay? <laughs> All right. Um, so back to the enzootic cycle, um, and then the occasional epizootic cycle, where one of these bad guy bats infects a, a diker, one of the ungulates, or, or a gorilla, or so, and then um, generally um, through random contact with one of these animals that's infected, um, the human-to-human -human transmission starts. Um, <clears throat> We had been familiar with this. The past geography of our Ebola outbreaks um, centered in this region of the world with an importation to Johannesburg, but primarily here, um, where the size of the circle represents the size of the outbreak, uh, and, and the color represents the uh, substrate, the strain of virus. Um, so, so here's what we knew since 1976 um, through the last previous in 2012, that there are handfuls or, or maybe a couple of hundred cases in, in places where you probably can't pronounce the name, so rural uh, epizootics uh, that, that occurred. The current geography um, has historically been unknown. So, so this is what's going on. Uh, this is where it's going on. We know so much about this now. 
that informs our information um, for control measures. But let me tell you the story um, quickly. So we know on um, December 6, 2013, a two-year-old child uh, died in the Guecadu, <coughs> excuse me, the Guecadu province um, in, in Guinea. And, and the family reported he had had contact with a bat. So that's how much we know. Um, it's, it's remarkable. So the healthcare workers and the family members who came for, the, um, for his illness and death eventually then disseminated back to their homes along major highways. Um, it was by March 10th that the, there were two Ghanaian jurisdictions that reported simultaneously of a recognition of an outbreak in, in their healthcare settings. In Guecadu, they, they had a small outbreak, but they noticed that this was transmitting to families. This was of great concern and prompted their report. In Makenta, they noticed that they had a small outbreak with high mortality, but that also healthcare workers were becoming infected. Therefore, the international community embarked on an um, investigation that quickly confirmed that this was um, never before seen in West Africa, Ebola virus. Spread was quickly recognized March 10th to Liberia, May 25th to Sierra Leone. It was introduced and controlled in Nigeria and Senegal. And, and now late-breaking information is that Mali is the sixth African country with Ebola virus disease, not unexpected um, um, because of the poorest borders in this region. Um, so a, um, a family ha was impacted by virus in Guinea and um, the mother died of, of Ebola and the family took uh, their, the young child back to um, this area and uh, was diagnosed yesterday and announced yesterday. Um, there's effort afoot, of course, to, to control contacts and, and try to nip this before it gets any worse. It was August 8th that the public health emergency of international concern was announced. And the rationale for that announcement, I think, informs a lot of our understanding of why this has been so dreadful, right? Health systems in this region are fragile uh, and extremely resource limited. There's inexperience because they've never had Ebola before. Incredibly hard to understand, hard for us to understand misperceptions about disease and transmission, even among the clinicians. So you've all heard some of this on the news. Um, there's high population mobility um, mentioned uh, already as the cause uh, for this regional uh, disaster. And then um, there's been capital cities where people are obviously very much more close together. And many infections among healthcare workers make this truly a global emergency. So uh, there are uh, grossly inadequate infection control practices in many of these facilities. Um, there is a global control strategy. I hope you can't read the fine print that this is pretty old at this point. Um, it has not been updated, but it, it still relies on the, the tried and true methods of um, disease control, early diagnosis, contact tracing, patient isolation and care, infection control, and safe burial. So that's been a very important aspect of this event. Um, up to 60% of cases in Guinea are thought to have arisen but because of the unique burial practices. So um, try to change a culture as you try to control an outbreak. This is uh, really a challenge. And um, Margaret Chan, the head of WHO since 2006, has a simpler explanation or a rationale for this emergency. Um, many people have asked her why it was so large, so severe, so difficult, and it's a single word, poverty. So the epidemiologic summary today is that the outbreak in Guinea, Liberia, and Sierra Leone continue to worsen. There is not control yet. Um, there's widespread transmission and recent spread to previously unaffected prefectures. And, and, and um, that, that is recent news that's very disconcerting. Um, the, their borders with other fragile states in their area, and these are major trade routes to, uh, and, and that are affected. Um, 
there's intense transmission in tightly populated capital cities uh, and, and the global total, you've seen the numbers and it, it changes very regularly and certainly rec uh, represents a tip of the iceberg. Um, so you don't have to be an epidemiologist to understand this is bad. Um, so, so this is uh, just one representation of, of uh, cases. This is the wrong direction for an epidemic curve and, and, and the deaths that are occurring. Um, didn't expect a blank slide there. I hope that's not a bad slide. Um, there's a lot of research going on now to understand this strain. What is different? And I'm sure you've heard this and perhaps been asked by, by friends and colleagues. Um, they've they've um, uh, sequenced a large number of isolates from, from this outbreak and from previous outbreaks um, and compared um, amongst them. We know exactly what this virus looks like. We know that it has a single chunk of, of genetic material that's different compared to previous. Um, we don't know the implication of that yet. Um, comparing strains within this current outbreak, there there are um, uh, some some differences, as you'd expect. Um, but what I find very interesting is that um, all of this genetic investigation suggests a single transmission from an animal and then human to human transmission. Truly, a bat caused this. It's really phenomenal, isn't it? And reminds us of how very fragile we are in the infectious disease world, huh? Um, oh, one more point on this. In this paper, which was really fascinating in science recently, I wanted to make note that they um, choose to interpret these single nucleotide polymorphisms, which are, of course, suspected, uh, expected within um, viral transmission patterns. They write in their conclusion, continual mutations could generate more lethal or more easily transmitted strains. I really dislike that. I think that's fear-mongering. There is no evidence for that. There is no historic precedent for a virus changing its route of transmission based on um, random mutations. So I think that this kind of statement is, is careless and irresponsible. So let me just state that boldly. Um, <laughs> um, huh, my, uh, sorry, the, there was the headline from the New England Journal from uh, October 16th. Uh, was here. It fell off on my way in this morning. Um, and, and this is uh, the WHO's analysis of the capturable patients in the first weeks of the epidemic. So this represents an analysis of over 3,000 patients, and um, they're classified as confirmed or probable based on definitions that I hope you'll trust really are, are I think, are valid to give us a sense of what's going on with the clinical scenario. Um, and, and really what the future might look like. Their intention in this analysis was to um, tell clinicians like us and, and there as well what the clinical features are. Does this one look any different than previous outbreaks? Um, and then really important time intervals that can help us predict the timeline going forward uh, and then improve control efforts. So here's something we could talk a long time about it, but I know you have your own questions and agenda, but I wanted to point out again that the epidemic curve does not look good. Um, that there's uh, really a mix between Sierra Leone, Liberia, and Guinea. Guinea appears to be perhaps controlling. Uh, there, there was a recent setback that is not reflected in this data set, uh, as, as there's been a, um, a, an outbreak that has contributed um, the sense of rise here in this curve. Um, the other feature that I think is, is really relevant is, is this difference between um, the black and the gray. So um, black, in, in this case, is good. These are confirmed cases. This really informs us of what's going on. Um, suspect and probable, many of you have been to these settings, and it's really it's harder to tell, right? Um, look at um, Liberia. The majority of cases are not confirmed. So, so you know, we're, we're, we don't know what's going on. They, they, they are you know, bodies on the street and, and really having a very hard time getting, getting a handle on 
what's happening really in um, Liberia. The key numbers, the incubation period, the infectious period, and I think you know incubation, infectious period is how long um, a, a patient is, is out in this community before seeking hospitalization, and this does suggest community impact. This needs to be shortened, of course, in order for control to occur. Um, there's the serial interval and the generation time, the time between disease onset or infection itself before it becomes uh, a patent with symptoms between the source patient and contact. So the relevance of these numbers um, is, is that the incubation continues to appear about 10 days from the time of contact to infection. The infectious period being witnessed in West Africa is about five days. So from the time somebody is symptomatic to the time that they come in for medical attention, five days is elapsing, that's a very long time. Um, and then the serial interval and generation time, I'll just let you know, um, inform the uh, um, replication factor, which is really important in predicting uh, epidemics. You might remember this from your epidemiology days, but you know HIV has a, um, uh, a four R0, so one patient in a, um, a previously uninfected population, a population with no immunity, will likely infect four people. SARS had a, a R0, R0 of four. Um, mumps has 10. Uh, measles, what's that, 18? Um, and Ebola continually uh, in, throughout all the outbreaks appears to be about two. So there's another R that I want to draw your attention. Not R0, which is the, tra the predictable transmission in a um, non-immune population. So you plunk, plunk an infectious person into a, a non-immune population, how many people are going to get disease? But the RT is the number of secondary cases during an epidemic, where you'd expect that to be dynamic, right? There's, there's people who become immune, who survive, who die, who, who maybe never have um, risk of disease. So um, the key number here is when that number, when RT falls below one, the epidemic is not sustainable. So those are the calculations that are being made in Geneva and elsewhere, and it predicts the need. How far are we from an RT of one? So that's what this paper was really about, and um, I'm afraid it's a little bit bleak. So um, I'm not fear-mongering here. I, I, just, I just hacked out one of the, um, the sets of figures that I think is, is, is clearly illustrative. So this is that cohort, the entire cohort, um, at, and, and then it's predicted out. So this is the reality and, and this is the prediction that is made based on those numbers I just showed you. So the RT um, uh, is, is not one and below uh, in, in any of these three countries. So unless control measures, contact tracing, case isolation and management, safe burials, vaccines and drugs improve quickly, there will be thousands of cases and deaths each week and we are starting to see that now. Um, the, in, in the global health circles, the concern is that this is going to become endemic in Africa if we do not mobilize and, and curtail this quickly. Um, in case you think CDC was um, uh, exaggerating or you know had bad calculators or whatever, CDC's predict. Oh, hey, that fell off too. And trust me, it was a, it was a really nice slide. Um, <laughs> thankfully, I've looked at it enough to know that um, it, it simply uh, verifies that um, that that headline. Uh, it's it's the graphic that uh, shows you that by uh, January, very soon now, um, we will likely have one million cases. So so what's remarkable about the WHO and CDC independent reports is how similar they are. So I think that um, these these look good. Um, the factor of underreporting is often asked. Uh, it, there's a conservative 2.5 factor because symptomatic persons evade diagnosis and treatment. 
Um, laboratory diagnoses uh, are, are not linked to reporting. You know, these systems are just not, surveillance systems are just not as good, of course. And then deaths are occurring um, without uh, ability to diagnose. Um, there's a pipeline for therapy. I won't go through it. Um, I, I, I have nightmares about these fields of tobacco plants um, that make the Z-map because this seems like a very cumbersome way to try to control this horrific outbreak. But there's other things that might be more easily um, manufactured. Vaccines have been sitting on the shelf, um, made with the appropriate targets, but without a financial incentive um, uh, for years. There's been no development of a vaccine, even though the targets have been well known. Now these are being pushed. There are at least two in phase one trialing, and and there's um, very favorable uh, release of, of ethical obligation to do this in in the very long, uh, usual pipeline way. Um, and and they think, but by January this will be used in many many people in West Africa. That that's the projection if all continues to go well. We've had our first nosocomial spread outside of Africa ever. You notice there are a lot of firsts in this outbreak, right? So you've heard, um, of course, about the nurse assistant who cared for the priest repatriated, really on death's door from, from Sierra Leone. Um, I think I'm gonna skip because I know you have, um, I'm getting to the end of my 20 minute allotment. So I'm just gonna say, we, we learn from these mistakes, right? We've analyzed and hyper-analyzed this, the tough questions for Spain. Why did they choose to repatriate moribund, heavily viremic patients, and why was the nurse not quarantined, or at least better informed regarding the significance of her fever, um, allowing transmission in the community? And what went wrong with the PPE? Um, I'm gonna skip this. And now, of course, you know we have our had had our first case diagnosed in the US, um, the Liberian, Mr. Duncan. Um, I'm going to skip this and just say that we have asked a lot of questions of Dallas. Um, why was the first patient not recognized? You know, why, why was this patient turned away, of course? Why were the two nurses infected? Doffing has again been implicated as the problem, taking off the elaborate PPE, which people are not used to using. And why was the nurse not better quarantined and she climbed on a plane? So in, sorry, in, in Concord we say, you know, a lot of our activities are to avoid being spallous, which is like half Spain and Dallas, you know, we just don't. <laughs> Don't be spallous. <laughs> um, there, there's certainly a lot of new information. We've had five medically evacuated um, patients in the U.S. Two have been identified in the U.S. Um, and if you haven't checked CNN this morning or wherever your news source is, everybody knows Mr. Duncan, but um, there is a young physician from Columbia Presbyterian who had been working in Guinea with Medicine Sans Frontier, who has been diagnosed overnight. So confirmation locally, it, it looks to be um, confirmed by CDC uh, in, in the next hours, but, but his clinical syndrome and his incubation period and all are um, uh, worrisome for this being a, um, indeed a, a second case that's diagnosed within the US. I'll have to skip these stories um, because I think you, you, again, you have questions that you want to move from out there to, to in here. Um, so so let's, let me do that. Um, you probably took comfort with me about Tom Frieden's uh, remarks on October 3rd with regards to US cases of Ebola. This is deeply troubling news. Absolutely it is. I mean, this is really unprecedented. Um, but there are distinct differences with what will happen here. Uh, I think that highlighting here, every healthcare worker must meticulously follow every single infection control protection that we recommend. 
This has evolved somewhat since we've had transmission occur from that um, uh, first announcement. The initial guidelines used by the CDC worked well for many, many years approaching patients who have Ebola in the African setting. With patients here in the US, we do things much more aggressively, right? Intubation, et cetera. Under those original guidelines, healthcare workers had a mask, but their hair and skin was exposed. We want to eliminate those vulnerabilities and essentially have everything covered. And that's Dr. Fauci um, giving that message out. Um, so I have um, certainly a lot of more to say about this. I, I've been cutting, cutting, cutting as, as uh, I received this charge because I really do think that um, the best use of this time what might be an initial time together to talk about Ebola uh, and how it impacts this institution um, is, is better spent hearing um, Antonia next and then opening up to your questions. So thank you for your attention. Can everyone hear me okay? Okay. So I'm very happy to be here to share with you what Dartmouth has taken on over the last several months and more intensively over the last several weeks, um, preparing our institution for the events of an Ebola patient arriving here. So we are following the CDC guidance in hospital preparedness checklist in the form of detect, protect, and respond. So the first thing we did is prioritize the fact that 90% of the hurdle is gonna be identifying a patient early and isolating them. So we have posted, and you may have seen, this poster from the CDC. It's meant to be for patients arriving. It's posted at every entrance in our institution and at every registration site that they could potentially present to. In addition, we've written up scripts that the registration people are asking. Now, historically, we have always asked about cough because we need that for internal surveillance, about respiratory season and impending flu season. Although we know cough is not a symptom of Ebola, we've left it there for surveillance purposes, but have added the question, do you feel like you have a fever? From that, we are asking, have you or other households travel internationally in the past month? And if so, has it been to Guinea, Liberia, and Sierra Leone? We have this flow chart that's being used by the reception desks, and it kind of visually gives them the idea of if a patient answers no or yes, what to do. And I want to highlight the red box at the bottom, which is instructions for them to instruct the patient to wear a mask and immediately notify the intake or nurse to immediately escort the patient to a private room that has a door that can then be closed. This is our immediate isolation protocol. The very next step should be to page CHIP. CHIP is our infection prevention team, and the pager number is 8447. From there, we will guide you through further surveillance um, questions in order to identify how at risk this patient is. So that goes into the details of, well, what exactly were you doing in those countries, and what was the risk of exposure, and what are your other symptoms in order to risk stratify. From there, the next step is certainly to contact um, the Department of Health, and then we have some more information to provide to you about what the next steps are. Mm -hmm. But the main idea behind this triaging step is that no one is touching this patient until we can get an idea of what the risk is for this patient having Ebola. So I went around yesterday and went to several clinics. And as you can see, they are diligent about having these signs posted immediately where they can be seen, right where the patients enter. 
Um, these are several of our outpatient clinics, including the emergency room. And what you also see are the scripts taped to the computer screens, taped next to the computer screens, right behind the desks. I think this is really important to note because I also asked all the registration people, do you have your script? Not saying what script. And they said, oh, yes, it's right here. It's right here. Did you have any questions on what you're supposed to do? No, we got it under control. So I, I am very confident that we'd be able to identify quickly anyone coming into the institution with any kind of risk. I want to also emphasize, and you may hear me say this multiple times, that the next step in after identify is to protect. And that is to protect our staff. That is our number one priority. And the focus has unanimously been on this personal protective equipment. Because it's known that the likely um, time of transmission happens in the doffing process, so when you're removing this very complicated protective equipment. So we had to determine what that ensemble needed, ensemble needed to be, and we knew from CDC guidance what was recommended. We needed to make sure we were going to be able to train appropriate people on how to don and doff it, develop drills, and what we now know very clearly is that it needs to be a two-person buddy system with a third person that can be there with a checklist, running it down and watching those two people like a hawk for any breaches in the protocol, any potential exposures that could happen in that process. And the next key to that protection is really limiting access to that patient. We want to limit it to only the people that absolutely necessarily have to touch that patient. So I want to walk you through a little bit of the difficulties in this PPE um, as we trialed it here. Originally, the recommendation was impermeable gowns, which is not our standard. So we had to get separate impermeable gowns, double gloving, a face mask, and a face shield. We um, developed actually Ebola kits that we pushed out to our ambulatory sites, including our community group practices and our emergency room. We intensively trained super users, as we call them, trainers to train others in those sections to be ready to be able to don this. We quickly realized from experiences in the US that this was likely not enough. So we moved to full body suits and a PAPR, which is the powered air purified respirator that offers better protection. However, you see here, there's still some skin exposed. We're now on to this. This is full skin coverage from top to bottom. This is now what's recommended. This is full PPE, potentially for a suspect or confirmed Ebola patient. This is difficult, very, very difficult to doff properly. And this will require intense training. But this is what's necessary to keep our staff safe. So the next piece is we've got the PPE. We've identified. We've isolated. Now how do we get the patient somewhere? So there's a lot of recommendations and guidelines for the EMS, the emergency medical services, who are likely going to be the ones transporting patients. But even with our, within our own institution, how do we get the patient from one setting to the next? And we've had a lot um, of help and collaboration with DART on this. And one way to do this safely is to move the patient in a mobile isolation unit. This is essentially a negative pressure tent that's put over the patient with various HEPA filters and areas where you can put hands inside to care for the patient without ever really laying hands directly on the patient. So our priority is to protect the staff. Did I say that already? <laughs> All right. So, the next huge hurdle was determining where are we going to care for this patient. There were a lot of factors that went into this. Number one, just physical location. Where are we going to have them? 
And what capabilities do we need that setting to have? The other thing that we knew we needed was an isolation room. So we needed it to be negative pressure. And to clarify that, it's not because the disease is airborne, but if aerosolizing generate, aerosol generating procedures are being done, such as intubation, nebulization, we really want it in a room and the protection we need to not spread. We needed this area to have some kind of anteroom, so a room or area where we'd have the staff don the appropriate PPE. And then we needed an area that they can leave from and have enough space and facility to be able to decontaminate and remove the PPE. So we went through a pretty long list of units that would potentially be able to accommodate all these factors or at least be remodeled pretty quickly to be able to accommodate. And that included our intensive care unit. And I mean the unit, not just a room. A short, the short stay unit, again, the entire unit, even if it's just one patient. The clinical decision unit, which has an orientation, I believe, next week, so hasn't even opened yet, but that was on the list of consider, considering places to be, and the emergency room department. So our ultimate choice was the ED, and I want to walk you through just to show you exactly what we're looking at. If you're coming in through the patient area, the waiting room's over here, and these are the isolation units, particularly room two and three are negative pressure rooms. The decon room is right here. So a patient arrives, gets immediately screened, bypasses triage, and is immediately roomed through the back door of that isolation room, so never goes through the rest of the waiting room or the rest of the emergency room. Staff member comes in, and at this doorway, which is closed, the staff will dog the PPE. They'll enter the patient's room, they'll do their thing, but it's a one-way room. You have to go out the side door into the decontamination room. Decontaminate, take off the PPE, take off your scrubs, take a shower, and leave the building. This is outside. It is now winter, but life, there is a very close door to go back inside right after that. But this is to get the clean people out and out of the dirty area. The process would be that they go back and return into the locker room, put on whatever other clothes or decompress. But the other thing we're gonna have down in the 3A, so again, on the other side of this door and wall, is our respite rooms where staff can um, have a drink, have food, rest, and actually be um, medically assessed after they come out of there. So an overview, keeping in mind that this area is the hot zone and everything in here is considered contaminated. That includes a working lab that we will bring up here. So no specimens, or at least very limited specimens, will ever have to leave this entire rectangular area. Again, limiting the people exposed to Ebola or any specimen that could potentially have Ebola. So just a live picture, this is the hallway. You're standing in the anteroom area. This would be the patient's room. And the door right here goes into the decontamination room. This is the shower right on the other side of the door. The second shower where you would be clean showering. And then this room we identified because the question has come up, what if this patient arrives with family members? And they've been living with these family members. They may have even traveled with these family members. What do we do with them? So at the initial triage point or identification of this patient being ill with risk factors, the entire family will be masked and the patient will be brought into that original room, but the family will be brought into this waiting room, which is inside the hot zone. They will stay there until we're able to contact public health and 
one, assess whether any of them are symptomatic, but two, be able to figure out whether public health wants them quarantined and what the next step will be. All right, number one priority is to protect our staff. So in addition to the PPE, which is obviously the most important piece of protecting staff and the training that goes along with that, we are in the process of develop, developing very detailed procedures that pertain to laboratory specimen handling, cleaning and disinfection, and waste management, because these again are all points in the process where one can be contaminated and potentially infected. So that gets to the response. So the idea of the Ebola response team, again, is to have a very small group of people. And when I mean small, we already have 50. And that's about how many is estimated to be needed to take care of one Ebola patient. And that team will be um, highly trained in how to don and doff PPE. Um, they will be trained in waste management because they will be doing the daily cleaning of the room. We are not involving the routine environmental services that we would otherwise do. And this team is made up of critical care slash anesthesia um, intensivists as well as nurses and emergency room physicians as well as nursing. And the critical care nurses are selected based on criteria that they've also been trained in CVVH, so dialysis because chances are this patient will require dialysis. And again, we wanted to limit now introducing another set of people into that room. We have respiratory therapists. We obviously have DART. Um, and we have laboratory people that are going to be involved in this group and in the training. Orientation starts today for that group. And there's another session on Tuesday and Wednesday of next week. And next week starts intensive training and drills for that group. We also have. Um, have created a team activation system. It's essentially a paging system. So that if we get called on the CHIP pager, the 8447 pager, that we have a suspect patient, and we run through and say they're highly suspicious, we blow out the page to that response team, and they come, somewhat like a SWAT team, to that patient, assess them, move them, care for them, and they're in the proper PPE. So the last bit of stuff is about employee um, expectations. This is really difficult. This is not, phys not only physically difficult, but it's going to be emotionally difficult. Um, there may be restrictions placed on these employees, depending on the risks um, that happen while they're caring for the patient. Human resource has worked with us extensively, putting together FAQs that kind of address all the human resource related questions. But we've also been um, very closely working with occupational medicine, developing protocols, not only for the post-care of our staff, but the pre-screening that has to go into whether these staff are essentially fit for duty and how they would do in these suits for extended periods of time. We've obviously come up with restrictions on how long they can be in there, but there's still a chance of dehydration and overheating in there as well. So on their way out, there will be um, assessments and screenings, both psychologically and medically, um, to make sure that they're doing OK. A few other questions had come up um, with institutionally, and that is, what are our decisions around if this patient codes, are we coding them? And if they need dialysis or intubation, are those things that we're willing to provide? Yes, we have all the capabilities, but ethically, are we bound to give it, given that the fact that the risk to our providers may exceed the benefit to the patient? We now have, thank you to our ethics committee, put together a policy with regards to CPR, and that policy is, a code will not be called on the patient. And the only people to perform CPR would be the people that are part of the Ebola response team. 
And however long it takes them to get properly donned to go in there and perform CPR, it needs to take. We cannot rush in there unsafely and provide CPR to that patient. Hemodialysis and intubation with the ways we can do lines um, in a calm fashion, I think is fine to offer. And at this point, we are intubation and dialysis. If recommendations change to that more globally and at the state and CDC level, that may change. Again, a lot of this is very much evolving day to day and hour to hour. So lastly, just so that you know, we have tried um, to communicate as best we can through almost daily emails at this point, but we have put together an Ebola preparedness website that is on the internet that you can all access. This not only has the updated email and emailed information, but this is where we're posting our procedures, our algorithms. So if anyone has any questions in any setting, this is where to go. This is reviewed almost hourly, if not definitely daily, and updates are made. Again, thanks to the team, because this has been um, quite endless for a lot of us. And I am proud and confident to say that I really think we can handle an Ebola patient coming here right now, really at any time. And I want you all to be um, clear that we really did this with the safety in mind and that there was no other way we we're going to do this. So I open it up for questions now because I know that there's a lot. But hopefully this has helped um, kind of explain all the work that's been done so far. Let me just make one comment before we start. Uh, let me make the connection between the two talks. You know, earlier this week, we made the announcement that we would be a receiving hospital for the state because we thought we had these capabilities. The evolving capabilities are really happening on a national level. Um, Dr. Talbot is doing just-in-time training at the state level now. The important thing is that we made this announcement knowing that we would work closely with the state and with the CDC. The government is probably working towards developing regional hospitals for the management of really sick patients. And while we can talk about our capabilities and we feel uh, we can certainly do this, if we were to take a patient that was quite ill, there would probably be a, a frank discussion with, with, with the government about transfer to a facility that, a high, that had a higher level of care. We need to be aware of this. And what we realize is that prior to a couple, uh, two weeks ago, there were four facilities that had biohazard training and bio, biotechnical training in the United States with a grand total of 11 beds. Four of them were, had Ebola patients in them. So regional preparation, regional response needed to happen. And that's what we offered. And that's what we feel very proud about. But I want everyone to be aware that this is not going to become a, a, a global or national referral center. We're going to do what we can do. And, and our, our priorities are what we're on five of, of Antonio's slides, which are protect our care our caregivers and that we're committed to that. So with that we'll we'll open it up to questions. We've got members of our team here, emergency emergency preparedness and uh, we'll go from there. So when we have mics in the room it's very important to get you a microphone so the people regionally listening can hear as well. So first of all I just wanted to thank all of you for all the hard work that I know you've been doing. It's been exhausting and um, this was a great job and I just um, from the Ahmed Live Well Work Well program just want to remind people that um, in addition to the um, emotional support that we're um, planning into the system that um, our EAP program, Employee Assistance Program, is available to any employee who needs um, some support for this or any other disturbing health news that's coming out. Hi, um, I'm Kathy Dayton from Respiratory Care. 
I really appreciate this information. It's definitely important to me and my staff. And uh, my question is, it's I am a night shift worker. It's 2 a.m. Sunday morning, and we have our first patient come in this weekend. What do we do? I see we call a chip line, and then we haven't completely been trained yet, so I'd like you to respond to that, please. Just go on. Um, thank you. I knew that question was going to come up. So I want to assure you that we are all on 24-7 at this point. And if someone did arrive, it would literally be just-in-time training, dressing you and doffing you. And we would not allow your um, safety to get in the way of that. Um, we've been planning for this for a while. And part of the issue has been um, the evolution of what the PPE is. And we had trained a bunch of people on that first permutation of it. And things have since changed. Um, we have people who know how to don doff it and um, work within it, so we will be there to provide that hands-on help if that comes up. And of course, yeah. <laughs> support from the state. Yes, yes. We'll be there. Um, and, and I want to let you know that I've been supported by by DH extensively, and um, one of those was uh, Dr. Butterly identifying funding for me to attend the uh, Center for Domestic Preparedness in Anniston, Alabama, last week where uh, they have a fake Ebola treatment unit set up. And it, it's just a, a great experience. It's really set me on a good path, I think, to help with um, the PPE aspects. Hi, I'm Lacey Colligan. And I have uh, used to work here a long time ago. And I'm recently returned. Um, I study safety and human factors. And I, I'd like to thank you for this presentation and say I'm really impressed with what you've done. I've been at an institution recently that won't even talk about this. And the, the level of anxiety across the staff, which uh, we all can understand, it's very high. And I say I feel really good to be here with the hard work you've done. Um, I, I have a little, I'm wondering a little bit about how, what's going to happen at the screening point when patients come in. Because we, we know that patients will either under-report or maybe there's hysteria and they overreport. So, you know, it's, it's, you could say they're gaming the system in either direction. Is there going to be a way to sort of continually monitor the screening process at the gate? So that, because CHIP could be really overwhelmed in flu season. Um, and it's not, I mean, how are you guys going to manage your resources and keep tweaking? the protocol, and then retrain all the receptionists. So that's a very good point. Um, and there is a very detailed process that has been put together, somewhat in a flow diagram fashion, um, for the receptionists and staff of that particular clinic, exactly what needs to happen when, and how to do it, and who to call, and things like that. But you're absolutely right that the limitation is um, the information we have is only as best as the information we're provided. And if someone opts to lie or not be totally truthful, um, we have no way of controlling that. Um, with regards to um, the changing seasons and then our changing epidemic. So we had started this remodeling of the screening process almost a year ago now with MERS-CoV. Um, what we had decided was we hardwired into our screening system the cough question that'll always be there, and then hardwired an international question. And I've been reassured and now have witnessed it that if we need to change the actual script for these receptionists, it can be done like that. 
And all we did was write up what we wanted, and we can change those countries in a minute, and then we'll be covered. Obviously, right now, there still is circulating MERS, not here, but elsewhere. And there are other things that we may miss, but there's almost only so much we can do um, if people aren't forward with their symptoms and their travel. Does that answer? Yeah, that's answer? great. Thank okay. Doctors, I have a question from one of the online viewers. Um, will the response team be taking care of other patients while caring for the patient with Ebola, and will there be an isolation period post-care of the Ebola patient prior to care of other patients or travel? Yep. So all of that is actually answered in our human resource FAQs, and the answer is no. None of that staff will be caring for any other patients than the Ebola patient. They will be taken out of circulation of any other clinical or administrative duties at that point, and will be nothing but 100% caring for that patient. The time period after that is really in the details of the assessment of their risk while caring for that patient. So the high risk things we worry about is if at any point there was any skin to body fluid contact, any percutaneous injury, or any other high risk exposure. And the implica implications for that is that the CDC has not definitively said these caregivers need to be quarantined, but they may have restrictions to travel based on that risk of exposure. And that would be given by the state or the CDC, and now it looks like it may change. As things evolve. <laughs> Dynamic situation. Um, it, it looks like um, it's gonna be very hard for, for our first case that, that we allow free movement in our society you know, with, with an exposure, given Spallus. Um, and, and so, so we're, we're coming up with a, um, a clear recommendation in this regard, and clearly that complicates things if we're going to indeed home quarantine. And so, so at the state side, we're, we're working very hard to make sure we can deliver food or house people who are in unsafe housing or, you know, those kinds of aspects behind the scenes. Back here. Hi there. Donna Zyper from Plastic Surgery Ambulatory. So I want to touch on what Lacey said. We're at the gates, and we have somebody in the room, isolated, CHIP is called. I've had many questions from staff saying, well, what, is, what if we have that patient in the room? What about the surrounding staff, like from the receptionist to the person who brought that patient into the room? Quarantine, that's been the big question. Would, you know, would we have to be quarantined as well until you figured out if that patient was contagious? That's been a huge question amongst ambulatory. And thank you. Yeah. So the answer to that is just going back and remembering how this is spread. It requires direct contact with body fluids. And so the idea behind the protocol that was developed for the ambulatory clinics is that no one is touching this patient, including the person rooming them. They're simply directing them um, into the room and closing the door, including the reception staff. Of course, if they vomit on you, then that's a whole different story. But the risk of becoming infected just from casual interaction with no contact is almost none. Um, so that's kind of why we said we're not, obviously we're worried, but we're not training anyone in the ambulatory setting for any of the PPE that's necessary because there would be no safe way to doff it in that setting. If I might just tack yeah. on a bit. Part of those slides that I've been cutting overnight <laughs> included some of the information we have around um, whether disease is transmitted in casual contact. And, and clearly, the, the 
one of the things that comes out of the size of this outbreak now is our experience is even in West Africa, household contacts who do not touch the patient do not acquire disease. And I feel like this, this recommendation is, is quite sound and, and we support it on the state side. I want to uh, applaud you for your efforts. It's really well thought through. Um, you know, a lot of us are uh, not only thinking about safety of our workers and glad to see you prioritizing it, but also thinking about the size of the, the global epidemic and recognizing that we're a, a wealthy area and we have resources and we can help. And so I wonder if you have thoughts on what would be the best way for us to try to make a difference globally if we wanted to give back. <coughs> Um, this is great. Thank you for that transition. Um, to say that um, in, there are a number of people who have asked this question in very um, you know, kind of poignant and, and dedicated ways. So we are um, looking to direct the um, outpouring of compassion and, and the expertise with that toward control at the site. Um, and, and so um, I've recently accepted a position um, as training director at the uh, International Medical Corps and we'll, we'll go to Liberia next Friday. Um, and we have others who are looking to support here um, and, and potentially even come there. So we're opening um, what's being called Ebola University in um, the largest insight, sort of the, what, what, the, what I went to last week by the CDC and FEMA. We're reconstructing that there, and then we'll extend it to Sierra Leone. So we, the writing on the wall and on those slides I showed you is that there, this is going to be a long effort. This is not a sprint. Um, and, and therefore, I think that this institution has the expertise, the compassion, the resources, potentially, to, to um, volunteer or, or to um, you know, be directed in right ways. And I don't think I should say much more about it, but thanks for that question, Tim. And Could you talk briefly about donations? Yeah, sure. Um, and I, I have a, a full folder of, of places to donate to that, that appear to me to be credible. So, so I, anybody send me an email, and I'll forward you that whole uh, list of places. You know the big names that are there and making an impact are MSF, WHO, uh, IM, IMC, International Medical Corps, um, International Red Cross, Save the Children, uh, CDC also. So, so there's certainly a, a lot of consortia op operative there on site. Let me just, uh, I think it's a great question and it speaks to kind of the heart of what we do and how we view our, our role in the world. And certainly Dartmouth has been involved in international efforts in Haiti and has an ongoing relationship with education and training in Rwanda and it's touched many of our lives in terms of that work. The response in West Africa has to be taken in context of the absolute safety of our team that goes over there and people that go. It's only heightened by the return of Dr. Spencer and his diagnosis last night who worked for an agency that had a high rate of protection but there's still a risk and, and so our endorsement has to be within the context of uh, uh, that we can ensure the protection um, of, of people that want to go there uh, and want to and and be able to answer that call. So this will be an ongoing discussion that, that, that we'll have as we think about endorsement. I think the epidemiology work and Dr. Talbot's calling is evident in her presentation and as we think about learners and trainees and nurses, that's the kind of interaction we would hope to have. Um, I think the situation in these countries is unstable at best and throwing healthcare workers into it because they want to help has certain risks and we want to make sure that as we do here, we want to protect anyone who ventures 
with the Dartmouth name anywhere else. So in that context, we're, we're, we, will, we will continue to, to, to meet those requests and, 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 and consider it. Doctor, we have a number of questions from the community group practices about procedures and protocols at the clinic desks in Concord, Manchester, Nashua, King Bennington. Could you address those quickly? Yep, so um, community group practices are included in our procedures and protocols. Um, we realize that they may function a little differently than our clinics here, but the general idea um, and the information that's provided in our protocols can easily be adapted down there. And they have been an intimate and integral role in our planning group. Um, so they are certainly part of our DH. And so we're treating them the same as we would anyone here. Hi, I'm Doug Parr from the Investigational Pharmacy. So if we had a patient and there was some discussion about using experimental vaccines, treatments, are these experimental drugs, vaccines available through the FDA expanded access program, how would those be obtained? So the, for a patient, we would look to some of the experimental treatments um, and, and those are some of the other slides that got cut. Um, but, but that uh, we're reassured that the mechanism for obtaining those will largely be through the CDC technical assistance and the, the medical strike team, both our federal um, groups that are intended to come to support uh, a, a setting like ours for those kinds of questions. We have another internet question. Um, I'm a critical care fellow. Will residents and fellows be part of the Ebola response team? <laughs> so there, um, there was a lot of discussion about this, and our ultimate decision was not um, to necessarily directly expose them to patient care. So they will be intimately involved in the care, perhaps from the outside of the door, and that's where we expect actually most of the care to be happening. We're setting up telehealth capabilities to really be able to allow consultants to not have to enter that room and only have essential personnel inside. So right now we've restricted um, that core Ebola response team who will get all the intense PPE training to non-learners, but they will definitely be involved in other facets of the care of the patients. Thanks. I have one other question. Just in light of the rapidly changing information and how you've emphasized that this is dynamic, if there are questions that um, any of us have that aren't answered on the Ebola website or the information that's coming out, is there a um, contact person for the Ebola response team that we or a central place that we can ask our questions? And will there be another forum like this? We, we have a 24-7 number um, at the State Health Department. And, and it's a 271-4496, which would be pretty obvious on the um, website. And, and again, that's 24-7. Um, it's a public health nurse who triages questions. And then um, it's either me, uh, Dr. Ben Chan, who many of you know, um, and Jose Montero, who are their backup. So, so there's resources at the state level, at least. Um, and we'll, we, if we don't know the answer, we, we, we bump it up to CDC. From an institutional standpoint, we've tried to be reactive to all the questions. We'll, we'll follow up on any questions that, that come through this. We've updated the frequently asked questions area. I, there will always be more questions, and we're trying to be really responsive to that. Um, and, and we're also trying to circle people back to the, the data that we know and, what, and what's evolving. We will continue. We can, our goal is to continue with our 
updates every day every day on email or and we'll probably go to maybe three times a week uh, we don't want to overload you with messages from me um, but it really represents the fine workings of a team that's working all day long so we'll continue to do that messaging and, and put it in a place where you can always access it you can look at it with your family you can you can read more about this and that's really our goal to provide information that you can access when you want to I know we're coming to the end of the hour here. Um, I don't know if there are any other closing questions. Uh, if we need another forum down the line, we'll have another forum. If, uh, if we need to do uh, anything else, we'll do it. I, I, uh, but we really felt like this was our responsibility to reach out and communicate. Again, this, will be, this, will be, this whole talk will be accessible. You can watch it as many times as you want. Um, and we'll continue to provide updates. I think that we tried, what we tried to present today was a very calm, detailed approach about the, the nature of the disease. You will not hear a more updated perspective on the disease and uh, a little primer on, on epidemiology, as well as our institution's response in, in, in a global and national framework. And we'll just keep you updated. So I appreciate uh, Dr. Talbot and Dr. Altamari, the rest of the team, and um, and for all you do for patients. And uh, I just want to, I want to give Gay Landstrom an opportunity to say <laughs> I just think we all need to give a hand to this team who has been working tirelessly. They're, they're worn out, but doing incredible work to protect all of us in this organization. So let's give them a round of applause.